Hi, and welcome back to the Mindful Sport Performance Podcast. I'm Dr. Keith Kaufman. I'm Dr. Tim Pinot. Uh, and today we are very happy to have with us two guests, um, kind of going outside of our comfort zone, <laughs> expanding the number of people, but really excited to be talking uh, with Dr. Jen Schumacher and Dr. Kat Longshore today. Um, Jen Schumacher is the Assistant Director of the Performance Psychology Program at the Center for Enhanced Performance at the United States Military Academy. She worked with cadets and teams on the psychological aspects of elite performance, providing services for swimming and diving, men's basketball, volleyball, gymnastics, and triathlon. Additionally, Jen works with cadets on the mental aspects of the survival swimming course and military field training. She created and directs the CEP's virtual reality program, and serves as the Performance Psychology Program's internship co-coordinator. Prior to her appointment at West Point, Jen taught sport and exercise psychology in the kinesiology department at California State University Fullerton and provided mental performance services to the athletic department. Outside of her role at West Point, Jen provides mental training for elite and professional athletes, marathon swimmers, speakers, and Fortune 100 executives. She runs mental skills seminars and team building retreats for, for athletic and corporate groups and mentored students seeking CMPCs. And I should say, Dr. Schumacher is also a CMPC. And Dr. Kat Longshore joined the Center for Enhanced Performance in May of 2020 as a performance enhancement specialist and lecturer. She works with cadets and core squad athletes on their mental game to perform at their best when it matters most. She provides support to women's basketball, women's and men's tennis, women's and men's soccer, and softball teams. Additionally, she teaches CEP's 10-lesson mental skills for cadet success and 20-lesson student success courses, and has taught the Psychology of Elite Performance course. She also serves as the Performance Psychology Program's Internship Co-Coordinator and Peer Coach Program Co-Supervisor. Prior to joining uh, CEP, Kat worked as a private practitioner through her mental performance coaching practice, Monocat Coaching, LLC, as well serving as a visiting assistant professor in the psychology department at Lafayette College, teaching a variety of courses, including sports psychology, design and analysis, and quantitative methods. Throughout her consulting, Kat has worked with national teams, professional and elite athletes, and Division I collegiate programs. Mindfulness continues to be one of Kat's major research practice and personal interests. And I should also say as a side note that Kat is also someone that we cite very, very regularly in mm -hmm. our MSPE work. So we yes. appreciate yes. all that she's done in that space. So thank you both so much for, for joining us today. Yeah. Well, I'll just start by saying thank you both for having us. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honor to be on the podcast. Uh, and, you know, the, the views that, that Kat and I intend to express today are those of our own uh, and do not represent the views of the U.S. Military Academy, the, the U.S. Army, and the, the Department of Defense. So a little something to get out of the way, but, sure. um, but still, nonetheless, really excited to be here with you two today. Yeah. Yeah. And we are excited to hear your, your perspectives. Definitely. And, and Kat, you have generously agreed to lead us in a brief meditation to kick things off. So please take it away. Awesome. Thank you. Um, excited to be here as well. So, uh, so if you want to just get into sort of a comfortable uh, position, um, I like to use the phrase that, that John Kabat-Zinn uh, says that, that embodies dignity. So a posture that's sort of upright, you know, shoulders, uh, shoulders square and holding our head up, holding yourself up. Uh, if you want to gently close your eyes, you're, you're welcome to do that. Or if you, you can leave them open and downcast. 
And, and for the first moment, just kind of notice uh, wherever you are, you know, wherever that is, wherever you're listening from, wherever you're hearing this from, just take, take some notice of where that is. What seat are you sitting on? What environment are you in? You know, who might you be practicing with? And just let yourself sort of sink into where you are in this present moment. And see if you can give yourself these couple of moments, these few minutes to just allow yourself the, the grace and the space of this present moment, whatever it might hold for you. And gently maybe dropping in on the breath and just noticing how the breath is coming to you right now. Maybe riding the wave of that in-breath. Really getting curious. What is it like to breathe? And riding that wave as the breath escapes. Staying curious about what what it is to breathe. The breath off, offers us a, a wonderful practice of impermanence. No two breaths are exactly the same. Just allowing that breath to come and go as it pleases. Perhaps having a little gratitude for the breath. It's always there, always available as a teacher. When a distraction presents itself, just noticing it gently guiding yourself back to the breath. Teacher once said, you can even pat yourself on the back, congratulate yourself for noticing. That's a moment of mindfulness. And so in any moment, we have the breath available to us to link us back to the present. Bring our awareness and our attention to what's happening right now. Maybe one more in. One more out. And as you sort of come back and open your eyes and wiggle, wiggle your, your fingers and your toes and, and just a little space of gratitude for those couple of nice moments of mindfulness.
Thank you for letting me lead that. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. Thank you for leading. Yeah. Uh, I mean, always nice to kind of get centered on, on the breath. And I, I would just, I love hearing the different ways that people lead meditations. And, and I, um, I realized as you were leading it, that question that you asked, what is it like to breathe? I don't know that I've ever heard that question or had it asked in the context of a meditation in that way. I just, I really loved it. Like the, I think we're often encouraging people to like, notice what the sensations of breath are as they come and go. But like, there is something about putting it in that form of a question that invited this kind of curiosity. And it got me thinking, I mean, at points it was a little bit distracting because I was like, how would I explain breathing? What is it like to breathe? <laughs> okay, you know, um, but it was, it really sparked curiosity, which I, I really enjoyed. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, it's such a great segue into one of the things that we wanted to talk to you guys about today, which is um, you work in such an interesting space with such an interesting population and have such interesting roles and how, how you bring that kind of curiosity to, to the work that you do. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what, what your day-to-day -day is like, what it's like to work in that environment. And, um, you know, I would imagine curiosity is a big part of what you're trying to build in the, in the folks that you work with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll take that to start and, and Kat can chime in and, and add to it. But, um, you know, our day to day is, is different every day. <laughs> it's hard <laughs> to pin down what a typical day looks like. But um, when I try to describe what we do, I usually work with uh, like a typical week in the middle of the semester. So during the academic year, when our teams are in, in and out of season, they're practicing, cadets are taking classes. Um, it's a more normal pace of life than the summers, which are a lot different because cadets are out doing various states of field training and, mm -hmm. and we're often in that environment, but there's a lot of other things going on. Um, a typical day might start with, um, you know, cadets, so cadets at the, the military academy have a different academic schedule than most college students, even though they're in a four-year uh, graduate, uh, sorry, undergraduate degree program. They, uh, their schedule often looks more like high school where they're in different periods of class. Everybody's in class at the same time. They have lunch around the same time. Uh, and then they all go play sports at the same time. There's some variations to that schedule, but what that means is that there's set periods throughout the day that we can do individual training sessions and classes with cadets. So from the hours of round eight to three, we're either meeting individual with, you know, one-on-one -on -one with individual cadets. Uh, we're conducting workshops with groups of cadets. We might be meeting with coaches during that time uh, and teaching classes during those times. Uh, and then around three or four o'clock, that's when cadets have practice uh, and our cadet athletes start a little bit earlier than the club squad uh, and intramural athletes that we'll often work with as well. Uh, but that's when we make our way out to practice and either observe or work with teams uh, in that environment. So we try to get out into their space where they're performing as much as possible, uh, even during the daytime hours uh, or during the class hours. If let's say I'm working with a group of survival swimmers, we do our best to get into uh, Crandall where, where the pool is that they'll be performing in. Uh, there have obviously been some complications to that uh, in our post-pandemic life, uh, but that's you know the, the kind of ideal way in which we deliver these skills is in their performance environment. Um, so that's a typical day is a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings, teaching classes, and then eventually making our way out to practices and working with teams and coaches. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, I, I would imagine, actually, before I kind of launch into this question, uh, to kind of put myself in context. Um, so like I come from a, I guess you'd say a military family, you know, I mean, my grandfather served in World War II. My dad went to West Point and you know, graduated from Ranger School. My cousin Stephen actually was went to West Point, played football for them. My brother John is currently kind of a major in the reserve. So like, it has been kind of in my awareness in my life for a long time, but I've never served in the military, right? So there's, so I don't want to come across as overly familiar when I am not, you know, I want to like be, actually be clear about that, but also be clear that I have been exposed in some ways to like, you know, indirectly kind of the culture of the military. And I know that comes with some assumptions that a lot of people who have never served probably hold too. Um, and so maybe that's context for my question. You know, I'm imagining that, in a, in a place like West Point, different from other universities, there's so much more value placed on optimal performance, um, particularly physical performance. And of course, any D1 school is gonna be invested in the performance of their athletes, but to know that these cadets are gonna go on to be soldiers, right? That they need to be able to perform physically in this optimal way. I would think that there's pro it's probably easier to get access, like to like, be part of the team in that way to like be with them in their competitive environments because West Point would have this focus on like really prioritizing physical performance. But is that, does that feel true? You want to take that one, Kat? Sure. I can chime in. Uh, I would say yes and no in, in some spaces. Yes. And in other spaces, maybe not as much. Um, so I think in the, in the athletics uh, realm for our core squad athletes, very much so. I think most coaches are pretty, um, are pretty open to and desiring of uh, sports psychology services, mental performance, adding, adding that into what they're doing. And so they're often pretty inviting into uh, the environment. I would, I would say my team sometimes wish they had more of me, <laughs> um, uh, yeah. but, uh, but at time, but I, I would say in other places uh, it is probably a little more cadet dependent or group dependent, um, on inviting in, in terms of, um, working in the space, being in the performance arena, or even just utilizing the resource themselves, you know, the, uh, coming over to the CEP and, and deciding to engage in, uh, in mental skills. We certainly, and Jen has made great strides with, with survival swim. We've certainly tried to, uh, to integrate a little bit more. Um, but you know, there's lots of different departments. And so, figuring out how to do that and how best to integrate, I think is still a, a yeah. work in progress, but yeah, Jen, do you have anything to add being there a little bit longer? Yeah. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say just based on my experience here at West Point and comparing it to other um, you know, division one universities that I've worked at, um, it's very well received as a whole. And I think there's mm -hmm. a few reasons why that is. Um, we operate in a center that's paired with student success so the Center for Enhanced Performance, which houses the performance psychology program in general, uh, enjoys a pretty positive reputation and is fairly accepted by the Corps of Cadets. Okay. That being said, there's still certain stigmas, uh, you know, as there is with any sort of help-seeking behavior, not just psychological services. Uh, and so we fight that to some degree. And then I think the bigger thing that we fight that actually Pat and I were just talking about yesterday is the challenge against time. Cadet time is so sparse. There's so many different things pulling on their attention and on their capacity. They're asked to be full-time students pursuing a four-year collegiate degree. Uh, they're asked to be athletes. Every cadet's an athlete. Even, you know, even our non-core squad athletes or non-division one athletes participate in a sport. 
And then of course, they all have a military job and military training that they must engage in. Um, so they're, they're very much stretched in every direction and to ask them to use their, you know, their small amounts of discretionary time that they do have to come into our center and do some mental training is always an uphill battle. Yeah. Uh, on the flip side, to work through the teams that we work with and the various populations that we work with and trying to embed it into their training program is also somewhat challenging because teams are limited in how much they can train and practice together. And yeah. um, so I think that's the, the biggest hurdle that we face. It's not so much uh, a difficulty in acceptance, although as Kat mentioned, it certainly is in some spaces, but in general, it's more a difficulty against time. Yeah. Well, and you may be speaking to actually kind of the, the answer to the second part of the question I was holding. Because on the one hand, I have this assumption that there would be a priority placed on optimal performance in a setting like West Point. And yet, I think I also am holding the assumption that kind of in a military culture, there's not much acceptance around mental training. It would be really focused on physical training. And even I heard you talk about, you know, it's hard to get the cadets to use their discretionary time for mental training. And I thought, well, why does it have to be their discretionary time? Why isn't that built in? as part, like a necessary part of their overall training. And, and maybe there is some, I mean, we see this resistance when we work with athletes everywhere, you know, and this idea of the mental training paradox that everyone recognizes um, that, you know, mental training is important for performance and yet so few people actually engage in it in a systemic or systematic way. So like, yeah, maybe you could speak a little bit more like to the, to that resistance, whether it be individual or structural and how you think it, is maybe unique in this military setting. I think too, really quick, sorry, not to, you're not asking me the question, Tim, but nonetheless, <laughs> I just want to add very quickly too how we've seen with the mental training paradox, how the number one barrier is exactly what Jen said, is the lack yeah. of time, the felt right. lack of time. Um, so just wanted to, to make that connection as well. Sorry, now please answer <laughs> Tim's, Tim's question. <laughs> No, it's great, Keith. I mean, I love that you added in the felt lack of time because it's, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. often that is the case. Um, but, you know, to Tim's point as well, it's, it's not mandatory. It's not an embedded part of most training programs. So some coaches endeavor to work with us to make that the case so that it's just a part of their training every week. Um, and that's, of course, like an ideal environment. But there's not as many opportunities outside of the Division I context that we have with different cadet populations to make that so. Um, and certainly some of that is a function of the prioritization of training needs uh, and not putting mental training as you know, high in the order of needs as mm -hmm. physical training and other forms of training. Uh, but you know, some of it also is just the institutional demands of trying to do so much with so little time. Um, and you know, I truly believe that it's impossible to do it all as a cadet. You do have to make some really tough choices. And certainly there's, there's some cadets that that place mental training at the top of the priority list and they're turning down opportunities for social engagement, for maybe sleeping as much as they should, for perhaps eating as well as they should, right? Some, it comes at an expense of something else. Mm. Um, it, it is really, really difficult for them to operate on all cylinders in every area of performance. Um, but that's, you know, of course, part of the reason why we exist is to help them with those priorities and to help them manage their time in a more effective way that leads to optimal performance. Um, but, but yeah, you're speaking to some of this, you know, the exact challenges that we face day to day. Yeah, I, I would echo uh, most of that is, yeah, is that it, there's just not a, a mandatory component. And, and I think still where I, I, we see this everywhere, where I think there is an assumption that by 
you know, training things, you are training the mental game, right? Like you're, if you're training physically, you're still training to be, you know, tough or mentally or to get through adversity or those kinds of things. And so um, I think that exists everywhere and and certainly still exists at at West Point too. So I think sometimes it's also just a, a matter of us maybe being able to educate a bit more, get words out more that there are, we can be even more intentional about that, um, that it doesn't just happen, you know, kind of by accident. Uh, we do, we do kind of have to be purposeful about that. And so, um, and I find that some, you know, it, it depends too on, on people's personal histories with mental training, right? If there are our officers or instructors that have done a lot of mental training themselves, then they're, you know, really pushing cadets to us or, or making time in, in, in their space and things like that. So, Sometimes it's also about what history or experience those people, you know, other people have as well. Yeah. Well, something, something I'm curious about, you know, I, I, I didn't know a ton about your center before. I know we've had some conversations with, with Jen, um, you know, just, just about maybe doing some collaborations and, and things like that. But um, something I didn't know that I just learned in, in reading your bios and hearing a little mm-hmm. bit about your introductions is how versatile your roles are. And, mm-hmm. and that you're doing the teamwork, the individual work and the, the classwork. Yeah. And I wonder how that interfaces with what you guys are talking about with this idea of um, integration and, and kind of building that in. If, if that's like, Kat, you just mentioned the idea of providing some education. Like, do you find that that's helpful that you're wearing so many different hats and, and interfacing in so many different ways? Or is that actually part of the issue with just lack of time because you're doing so many different things and they have to be so many different places? both. <laughs> um, it's, it's helpful in that, you know, the classes that we teach, um, especially the student success course, uh, you know, a, a large portion of the Corps of Cadets will take. So about a third of all incoming freshmen take that course. And that's really their initial exposure to our center. And about a third of the lessons in that 20 lesson course are dedicated to mental skills training. So they do get a decent amount of exposure that first semester of their journey at West Point. Um, now, unfortunately, that's not a recurring exposure, and many of them go on to do other things and forget about us along the way. Um, but that does set up a large majority of the core to be very familiar with everything that CEP does. Um, and then, of course, we teach a you know a three-unit upper division uh, sports psychology course as well uh, for those that are looking to kind of take a deeper look, and then a, a more applied ten-lesson course on mental skills training. And those are electives that cadets can choose to take. But we have a much smaller percentage of cadets coming in through that class. Um, I think all those classes that we teach are important uh, for exposure and legitimacy of our program. But you're absolutely right in that they do take away from time that we could otherwise be spending with coaches, with leaders that are then helping share the use of performance psychology services um, and and helping us maybe better position ourselves to work in those applied settings. So it's a give and take, um, but we've been very fortunate in the last academic year that we've had a lot more collaborators uh, in other departments that have been helping with that load, especially with the three unit um, upper division class, which is a little bit more cumbersome to teach than the other two, as you might imagine. Uh, so we've had a lot of help there, and that's you know definitely freed both Kat and I up to be more present with our teams and other populations. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would echo a lot of that. And I think one of the, the great things about the upper level sports sports psychology class, as well as the the ten lesson uh, course, is we really don't actually get 
that many core squad athletes in those classes. Like mm-hmm. the, the majority of those classes are, are cadets um, who are just, you know, interested in, in maximizing their performance in some way or taking those classes. So mm-hmm. that is a good way of getting at even more of the, of the core um, than, than, you know, the core squatters who are kind of already know we exist and are already working with us. So, um, so one, another benefit of having that, that touch point uh, there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it just makes me think about how important kind of approaching this from this like really holistic perspective is, right? Mm-hmm. That it can't just be, you know, one person or a couple of people in a center, like off siloed somewhere that's like trying to reach out to everyone. Like it's, it has to be these collaborations, whether it's, you know, coaches being willing to like proactively reach out and funnel athletes to you or other other people at the university willing to carry some of the load while you're teaching those classes. Cause yeah, what you said, Jen really struck me that like, what a great way to expose all of these cadets to what's available. I mean, another piece of that, um, the mental training paradox we talk about is as a knowledge gap, people just don't know how, like what, like what is even available or how would I even approach mental training just to let someone know like, Hey, we're here. We can explain all that to you. Right. It's probably kind of so much more than a lot of other students elsewhere are getting. Right. Yeah. And we've been really fortunate over the last few years to, I think, enhance our ability to collaborate across, you know, with other departments. Uh, Kat mentioned the, the survival swimming program. That's something we worked really hard to better integrate ourselves with the department of physical education um, and then during basic training, um, affectionately known as BEAST, uh, so before, <laughs> before starting their first year, cadets uh, or new cadets, as they're called at that point, undergo six weeks of basic training. Um, and during that time, they get a brief from our center, but of course, they also get briefs from, you know, all dozen sure. centers on campus, and they're in this altered state of, you know, going through this incredible life transition. So it's not as memorable as it could be, but this past summer was the first summer that we introduced a workbook that mirrors the Army's uh, Holistic Health and Fitness Program, which Mm -hmm. has different areas of readiness, including mental readiness. And it was through that effort that we were able to better integrate some of the exercises that we do with cadets and a little bit more specific information about the performance psychology program and how cadets can engage in mental training beyond BEAST, not to mention that they were going through different pages of that workbook with their cadre during the program. Mm -hmm. So um, this was the first summer that we were able to implement that and I think it was a great way to expose a large number of cadets in, at a very surface level, but nonetheless give them some exposure to what our center provides and how they can continue training uh, if they choose to. Yeah. You know, That's cool. the fact that they call it beast <laughs> uh, <laughs> is actually a, a great segue, a pivot uh, a bit, uh, but to another kind of question I had in mind, like, and again, assumptions about military culture, right? But um, I think there is this, this idea in our cultural consciousness that the military is kind of a, a hyper-masculine environment. Mm-hmm. And that the idea of when I hear mental readiness in the context of the military, I'm thinking like, don't feel anything, <laughs> you know, be able to be totally focused and never get distracted. And there's no room for compassion, right? No room for softness. Mm-hmm. I'm doing air quotes. You can't see that because it's a podcast. Um, but like... <laughs> And when I think about the training that, you know, that Keith and I do, um, I I often am leading athletes to concepts around gratitude and compassion, how to be gentle with yourself, how to let go, forgive yourself, so to speak, for making 
a mistake if you judge it as that and how to move past it, right? To stay sharp, to stay focused. But it, I, and I have this assumption that that would not be kind of a welcome tra- like kind of training in this, in this setting. So, so yeah, when you talk about mental readiness, what, what do you mean? And, and, and does this tension that I'm envisioning really exist in, in the work that you do? Yeah, I, I would say probably mental readiness in the context. It, it, it honestly, it probably varies depending on who you ask. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I still think it means, you know, yes, you're right. Ha- having a level of focus, um, being able to manage oneself, self-regulate in, in the environment, make good decisions uh, under a lot of pressure, um, you know, be able to still physically perform under pressure, uh, things things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I think at West Point, I think probably the, so I, I'm, I'm pretty big on compassion, uh, and teaching compassion, um, and, uh, and those, those sorts of concepts. Um, and, you know, I think what's interesting is to some degree, I think it, it's kind of a relief sometimes when I talk about it with, with cadets and, and uh-huh. in class as like, oh, okay, that, that's, that's an okay thing. And, and I don't think it's just, cadets, right? I'm sure you all run into that sometimes too with, with high performers, right? It's that, that striving that, you know, I think the biggest concern is if I'm compassionate, then I, then does that mean going to make me complacent, right? Does that mean then I'm not going to be, you know, striving and pushing myself and, and that drive. Um, And I think helping them come around to that idea of what you were saying of, you know, the the compassion actually helps that, you know, that, that if I can move on quicker from things, if I can, you know, see my own humanity. Um, and a lot of times, you know, one of the ways that I'll break in with that is, you know, Hey, would, you know, what if, what if someone else was going through this? What, what would you say to them? What would, what would happen with them? You know, or, um, do you think other people deserve, you know, sort of layers of compassion or these, these good things and things like that? And and it's like, yes. And I was like, okay, they're human. And and yes. Well, are you human? Yes. So why don't you deserve the same things, right? Mm-hmm. And so just kind of breaking into that a little bit and and helping them see that they're human too, and having some compassion actually helps move things forward, and and that that compassion for themselves then builds to actually have a more genuine compassion for others uh, as well. Um, it's it's tough. It's tricky. Some some cadets are not on board with that, um, <laughs> but you know it's just and trying, trying different things to, to help them see the, the benefit of, of, of that sort of feeling or thinking. Kat, will you actually use those words or, or do you find that you have to explain around it a little bit to get at those concepts? I, I try and use those words yeah. um, because I, uh, I don't like to call things other things than they are. And sort of like, then that's making it seem like it's a bad thing to have yeah, that. Right. Yeah. So, um, so I, you know, if I'm talking about mindfulness, I, I call it mindfulness. I call it meditation. I, you know, I call it compassion because I think that's part of it is breaking down this, these, some of these maybe negative or unhelpful kind of, you know, assumptions or, 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 um, perceptions about those, those concepts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll add in too, just not having the same, you know, depth of background that, that Kat brings to our center, you know, something we were really excited about when she joined our team was her background in mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I've learned a lot from her about these concepts of mindfulness around self-compassion uh, and gratitude and, and even just 
better understanding the language in which she uses and talking to cadets. Uh, and it is generally well-received. Um, it's, it's been really helpful, I think, for those of us that don't have that same background and, and aren't as familiar with, with how to talk in those terms. But, you know, in general, at least from what I'm seeing, it's, it's pretty well-received. It is a, a breath of fresh air. I think it's making us all better at what we do. Um, and, and perhaps a piece of it that we enjoy, um, you know, better receptivity from is, is that we're getting cadets very early on in the military transition from civilian to military life. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, they're still 17 to 22 year old college kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, you know, while they're here, they are becoming officers. They are becoming young adults, young men and women that lead. Um, and I think that that's an incredible opportunity that we have to help teach them these concepts that will ultimately enhance their performance. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes so much sense. All right. Cause they're, they're not, they haven't yet been kind of totally immersed in military culture for better or for worse. Right. So like there maybe is more receptivity there and it makes me wonder, do you find the same acceptance or receptivity from the officers, the coaches you're working with, you know, like the, the this, this older generation who probably wasn't <laughs> taught about compassion, right? Like when they see you trying to teach us to the cadets, to their athletes, are they on board? Are they skeptical? Like what kind of, what's their response to it? I mean, I, I get mixed responses. Um, maybe I'll, I'll let Kat chime in because I think this is a more simple part of her work. So she might have better insights here. But I just wish, I would yeah. say it's, yeah. I wish the listeners could see your face right now, Kat, because it, it says so much about <laughs> what experience you might be about to speak about. <laughs> No, again, I think mixed too. I I think, um, I think coaches kind of see it as, uh, they're like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But then I think it's still hard for them to do themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think it's part of it is still, you know, breaking down, not just, oh yeah, that, that sounds great for them, but then also for me. Right. And so it's kind of like, okay, but we need to be able to model these things. Right. So, um, so I think there's a, a mixed and, and even with, um, you know, with some of the instructors and, and things like that, I think it's still just down to that same kind of educational piece of what does compassion really look like in real life? Right. Can I give you an example that shows what, what com- a compassionate response might be or what that might look like in real life? And I think those kinds of things help, right? Because that breaks down the idea that it's just letting somebody off the hook. Well, no, it's yeah. not letting somebody off the hook, right? It's, it's saying like, wow, that's a really tough spot you're in. Okay. Like, let's talk some more about that. Um, but even with that, you know, we still, you need to get your assignments done. You know, we, we still need to get, get, get moving on these things. So it's, it's being able to be with the person, but also, you know, it doesn't mean that you just let them off the hook. They don't have to do anything for, for that amount of time. So I think being able to break it down a little bit more makes it more real than this kind of heady, oh, just be compassionate. Like, what does that mean? Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I still think it's also the, yeah, can they be compassionate towards themselves? Right. Maybe that's great for cadets to learn, but you know, maybe not so much for me, or I don't know how to do that for, for, for my own self. So I think it's still, um, yeah, just how can we kind of get them maybe to, to practice a little bit more or to do, to do more. So I don't know that they're, I don't know that it's not receptive. I think there's some skepticalness about what it looks like in practice. I think that's kind of the, sometimes the line that I find hard. Something that I imagine 
must be helpful. And and Jen, maybe you can speak to this too with, with more of the intervention work that you do, but having the embedded positions, you know, having the spot on campus where you get the repeated exposure, mm-hmm. right? Where you're, you're, you know, maybe the first time you introduce an idea like compassion, that's a tougher sell to a coach, um, but that you can work with them over time, they can start to see some of the benefits. So I'm kind of curious, and this is kind of a segue to a, a slightly larger question, but with your embedded roles, if you find that advantageous, just the repeated exposure, and then how, if at all, you guys are, are kind of assessing effectiveness? Like, do you have anything that you're doing to sort of see, well, how is this stuff impacting? How are the mental training techniques that we're introducing benefiting or not? I mean, you know, obviously we're, we're, Tim and I are very heavily in the mindfulness world. I'd be curious about any findings you have on mindfulness, but mm-hmm. Um, even more broadly than that, this is just seems like such a unique opportunity you all have in your center with, um, you know, being such an integral part of what, what the cadets and, and all, the, all the folks on campus are exposed to. Um, certainly, I can, I can speak to some of the embeddedness part of the question and then, and then maybe popcorn over to Kat for some, uh, some discussions about what we found with assessment and effectiveness. But um, I, I do think we absolutely enjoy the fact that, that we have embedded positions. There's four of us working in the performance psychology program. We have a center that's relatively well known across campus. We still have plenty of work to do in terms of better advertising and educating about our resources. But in general, I think we're, we're in a pretty good place in terms of the reputation within the core of cadets and how it's received by officers uh, and coaches. Part of you know what what helps that is is we've been around for a while since you know Nate Zinser started the program in 1991 mm-hmm. uh, and expanded it out to the entire core of cadets in '92. So coaches are well familiar, and then our officers who are often rotating in and out every three years, um, you know many of them were exposed either through CEP at West Point or through you know if they had positive experiences with the Ready and Resilient program out in the operational army, they come in with a certain level of understanding and knowledge about about what our training could do and how it might be useful. And therefore they're better you know, able to make referrals and, and help cadets seek this resource if it, if it appears that it might be helpful in their training. Um, so we certainly enjoy that you know, we've been around for a while. It's a fairly established program. Uh, and we do get multiple points of exposure because of the varied nature of our roles. We get to see cadets and coaches in a variety of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I I would echo that. Um, And even for us, just trying to, you know, I think in my first year and a half at, you know, it's been COVID time. So it's all, it's been a little Mm -hmm. interesting trying to navigate that, but just, you know, the cadets so appreciate when you, um, when you see them as a whole cadet. Uh, So even though, you know, I have core squad athletes who I work with on the field and things like that, but then when I show up, you know, to their IOCT, which is the indoor obstacle course test, it's one of their, their major requirements, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, yeah. Dr. Cat, like, thank you for coming to, you know, like, so, so just being able to kind of, um, you know, see them as for all that they're doing. And, and I think the embedded nature allows us to do that, uh, which is really nice. Um, yeah, in terms of assessment and things like that, I think that's still, you know, as ever, as where everyone is, we're still kind of navigating that and figuring that out. And I think as as individual consultants within our different teams, we all do that a little bit differently. Um, mine is probably slightly more informal. You know, at the end of the year, I usually send something out just to kind of get a sense of what people got got from the program. Um, one of the way, one of the things we do a, a, a lot of assessment on, or and have have really tried to make a more concrete assessment in the the last couple of years is is our ten lesson mental skills um, course, 
we use the, the ACSI, the athletic coping skills inventory, um, give that to them before, you know, in the first class before we even start. And then, uh, at the end of the, the last class, um, and, uh, we've, we've found even in those 10 lessons, um, those across the, you know, about 40 cadets or so that, that take it, uh, you know, each, each round or 30 to 40, somewhere around there, um, and then over the year, we will compile that data and, and we found that the, the every subscale and the total total score has has significantly improved just in those 10 lessons. What we're looking to do now is, is actually send them back out to see if there's any um, hopefully some some uh, holding on to that growth in yeah, the yeah. You know, six months or years, you know, after after taking uh, that uh, that course. But um, we've we've done, a, I think, a good job of assessing what what cadets are getting from that course, which uh, which is helpful. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, we don't have anything specific to mindfulness, uh, but we do actually have another colleague who, who just came on, um, Dr. Ryan Irby, who's who's also um, doing a lot with mindfulness and, and he's been and more of his role is a bit more research focused. That's the thing. Our role is not, not really research focused. So mm. uh, I know he'll be doing some more um in that arena. And so certainly that's something we can, we can share if we're able to, uh, as some of that yeah. comes, comes about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's exciting to hear that there's, um, uh, that, you know, your center has really leaned into mindfulness. It sounds like with taking you on cat and, and Dr. Irving now, like that's, that's pretty cool. And I, maybe another question is I find myself kind of preoccupied with this idea of culture clash, but like, as you kind of integrate mindfulness more into this mental training, um, like, and maybe it's not something that you're seeing yet necessarily, but just, I guess in, in the way that you teach mindfulness cat or understand mindfulness, like, do you see points of tension or points of friction? Um, you know, I, cause when I think about mindfulness, I, you know, I think about how it's like so primarily about looking looking inward and taking our subjective experience so seriously, um, whether it's what the breath feels like or what thoughts and emotions arise, right? And not to buy into those thoughts and emotions, right? But to, to recognize like I'm having them, this is a real experience. I don't need to dismiss it, right? I can reckon with it here in the moment. Um, and then I have this kind of like assumption about the way the kind of hierarchy in the military goes, like you receive orders and it's really not about your subjective experience. And so like, is there tension between like teaching these young people how to look inward and take their internal experience seriously in this broader context of like being taught kind of not to take that experience so seriously. Uh, and, and maybe I'm like completely misreading it, but yeah, I guess I'd be curious to get your take on, on how you, how you envision mindfulness as you understand it to be kind of integrated into this military culture. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's points of, of tension um, with that. I think, I think the, the, the tact I take or the, the, what I see the purpose in some ways of, of helping them understand mindfulness or train some mindfulness is, or, or bringing that quality of mind to the table is really in that responding versus reacting, right? Mm. How am I responding to things versus reacting to them? And, you know, yeah, you want to build self-awareness and you want to, you know, you want to be able to understand yourself and all that kinds of things. And and in some ways that's really just to be able to respond better in the moment. And Mm. so, um, you know, when they're taking orders and they really don't like it or they really don't want to do it right. Sort of, well, how can you respond in a way that's helpful or skillful in that moment? Um, and, you know, not, 
react to uh, that authority in maybe the way you want to in that moment, um, or or even in the, in a way that maybe is you know I think there's a, a piece of that too, like kind of values and and orienting those right, like who can I still be me? Can I still you know act in a way that is is uh, genuine to myself in that moment, um, and that's you know, if you don't agree with something, that doesn't mean that you have to then say, I don't agree, blah, 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 right? But more like, what's the most skillful approach or way to respond in that moment? And it might might just be to say, okay, sir, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, deal with it after. Um, So I I think that's, so certainly there's going to be some, some tension there, but, uh, but learning just how to be more skillful, I guess, in the moment is, is part of it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, as I was like, kind of putting that through my own filter and and it was like yeah oh yeah i hear you talking about choice right, right? like even, yeah in that moment right you're like quote unquote following an order but you're choosing like you're i'm choosing how to react in this moment to this person you know giving me this order and right and, and that choice fits in the context of broader values i chose to be here in the military i chose you know like and i want to be a good soldier which means x y and z right? like right. so yeah that i yeah i that's the connection yeah. i made <laughs> yeah well, this has been great. We really, really appreciate you guys joining us. It's been so fascinating to hear more about your work and your program. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I know we we would love to, um, you know, give our listeners a chance to learn more about what you guys do. Um, so, you know, individually or certainly with your work with the Center for Enhanced Performance, any any resources you can suggest or places you'd like to direct our listeners for for more information? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, certainly we can we can share our personal sites as well. But uh, mm-hmm. if if your listeners are interested in learning more about the Center for Enhanced Performance, I would direct them to uh, the Westpoint.edu site. We have a center page there, uh, and then we also created a temporary uh, COVID post COVID page called CEPTutoring.com, uh, and that's where they can find a little bit more updated information uh, that you know we, we were pushing out to cadets during that that time uh, of remote. Uh, you know, work and communication. Uh, and then also CEP Instagram. Uh, so they can follow us on Instagram. We're constantly uh, striving and maybe not always doing as well as we can, but working to enhance our social media presence. So that's another place where listeners can, can follow us and see, you know, all the work that we're up to. Um, and I know, you know, personally, if, yeah. if uh, any listeners are interested in finding me, I have a website, jenschumacher.com. Uh, they can find me there. Great, great. Uh, yeah, and same if uh, if any listeners are are want to know more about me, um, I have a website. It's called uh, Monacat Coaching. So Monacat is M O N I K A T uh, Coaching dot com. Uh, so happy to have you visit that. Yeah. Oh, great! We I can, also, we can I... also share our contact information too if if you do show notes or anything like that, so users can um, or listeners can reach out directly if they'd like. Oh, that'd be great. Sure, thank you. Um, I also, I know it's probably, you know, less exciting to direct someone to a research study, but again, I know I said it this at the beginning, but Kat did some amazing work, um, in mindfulness and, and yes, a study yeah. that, that we refer to quite often. So I know Kat, do you want to mention that really, really quickly? <laughs> uh, sure. So, um, yeah, so one of the, the first studies is a systematic review of mindfulness training in, uh, in sport and exercise psychology. It was in the journal for clinical of clinical psychology, sports psychology. Um, yeah, I wrote that with, uh, with Ryan, um, and, uh, and 
so we, we co-authored that uh, a little while back. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a good overview of what had been done up to that point. Uh, so it was back in 2015. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah for, for our listeners, that's Ryan Sappington, if you want. Yeah. To sorry. Out. I should have said, <laughs> I just know him as Ryan, but yeah. Ryan <laughs> sorry, sorry like Ryan. Cher, right. He's just a one, <laughs> one name guy. At this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it is, it's a, it's a fabulous, um, piece. So definitely check that out. We, yeah, we rely on it a lot. So yeah. again, thank you for that. Appreciate um, it. And for folks who want to connect with, with us, with our MSP Institute, we also have some, some uh, social media presence and online presence. We have a website, uh, www.mindfulsportperformance.org. We also have a Facebook page for our Institute. Our podcast has some, some great resources as well. We have an Instagram page as well. Uh, the handle there is at mindful underscore sport underscore podcast. Um, and we have a YouTube channel where we do post our meditation practices that, that begin our episodes. So we've got a nice library going there if you're looking for some free resources. So with Kate's blessing or Kate, Kat's blessing, excuse me, we would like to, um, to, to post what she led at the start, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Um, awesome. Awesome. Um, and if you'd like to follow me, uh, Dr. Keith Kaufman on Twitter, my handle is at mindful sport doc. Um, we also want to say a quick thanks to, uh, our colleagues, Dr. Carol Glass for all of her support for the podcast behind the scenes and also our wonderful producer, Taylor Brown, um, of Enduro Mind. Uh, so a big thanks to him. Um, and of course, uh, we have our book, mindful sport performance enhancement, mental training for athletes and coaches. Um, so we are, are very uh, open to reviews uh, or ratings of our book and also for our podcast, if you are so inclined. Um, so thank you again to Kat and Jen for, yes. for joining us today. And thank you to everyone who listened. Yes. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for, having, for having us. Having it was us. our pleasure.